Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Leading us in prayer. Uh, parents, now is the time to dismiss your children for Children's Church, as David has just prayed. So feel free to do that. Kids, you can head back to the center door where Mrs. Scholler is. And uh, the rest of you can open your Bibles, please, to Genesis chapter 20. Uh, Thanks, David, for all those announcements. It's a a lot of information, so I want to add just one thing about the prayer meeting. We do meet Wednesday nights at 6.30. This coming Wednesday night is going to be actually our last prayer meeting for the year. Uh, So on December 22nd and 29th, those are Wednesdays, we will not be meeting those Wednesday nights, but we will resume Wednesday, January 5th. So we are meeting this Wednesday, 6.30 in the Fellowship Hall, but that'll be the last prayer meeting for the year. Um, Also, I want to make sure you all know that we have our annual business meeting coming up here at New Life, and that's going to be on Monday, January 24th at 7 p.m. And if you're a member here at the church, it's uh, very important for you to attend that meeting, so I would encourage you to do all that you can to be there. Um, If you're not a member, even if... This is your first time at New Life. You are welcome to come to that meeting. In fact, I always say it's a really good way to learn a lot more about a church when you come to its annual meeting. So feel free to come. Uh, We would love to have you. Uh, But one of the important things that will take place in that meeting is that you, the members of the church, will be voting on potential new officers. And so we have two elder candidates who will be put before you. And those two individuals are Joe Blaylock. Joe, can you please stand up briefly? I'm not going to ask you to say anything. Just... There's Joe. Um, (laughs) And John Connor, too. And you better clap for him as well. So, where's John? There's John. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, we're very grateful to these guys and their willingness to serve as, as, uh, as really an elder here at the church. But they cannot serve unless you vote them into office. So that's uh, an important part of our polity here. Nobody serves as leaders in this church unless you, the congregation, vote for them to do so. So this is your opportunity to do that. Um, we will have more opportunity for you to get to know these guys. We're going to have a Q&A session with them one Sunday morning. Uh, some information sheets that will be coming out. We'll give you more information about those things soon. But again, annual meeting, Monday, January 24th, 7 p.m. <clears throat> Okay, let's turn our attention to the Word of God, Genesis chapter 20. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay because we have paperback Bibles in front of you underneath chairs. You can grab one of those and open the Bible to page 9. I think probably all of you have (coughs) experienced this situation where you go down to your mailbox and you pull out a letter, and the letter says, you have just won a million dollars. Right, And so they, they give you these directions about what you need to do. You can call this number, you can fill out this form and send it back, and you're, you'll, you'll get a million dollars. You'll be an instant millionaire. And they just want to do that out of the goodness of their heart for you. They just want to show you grace and love and care. Now, we all know what to do with that letter. You put it directly in the trash can. Right? I mean, that's what most of us do. We, we don't even really open it up. We don't even pay attention to it because... We're kind of conditioned to believe that if something is too good to be true, it probably is not true. (laughs) Uh, We're kind of conditioned to not being treated with grace. We're we're conditioned in this life to always know that if if you're going to get something, you've got to give something. There's always strings attached. There's always something you've got to do. 
We're not used to grace. Now, that's a challenge for us because if we have to come up with one word that would describe the Christian faith, if you were limited to just one word, grace might be the best word to describe what it is to be a Christian, what the Christian faith is all about. It's about grace. And if I could just define grace for you, I would say it this way. Grace is receiving the absolute best when you deserve the absolute worst. Now, does that sound like it's too good to be true? Well, that's the grace that is promised to us in the Scriptures. And this passage that I'm about to read to you here in Genesis chapter 20 might not seem to be about grace as we read it. In fact, I don't think the word grace even shows up in the passage, but grace as a concept is pervasive in this passage from start to finish. And so this is where we're going to pick up where we left off last week. Remember chapter 19, uh, which didn't seem to be a passage that was filled with a whole lot of grace. Uh, that was a passage that seemed to be filled with a whole lot of judgment. But that's why we read the Bible in balance. You don't just take one chapter and then draw conclusions about who God is from just one portion of the Bible. We read the whole Bible, and we find that there's a great balance presented to us. The Bible is about judgment, but the Bible is about grace as well. So we left last week um, Sodom and Gomorrah in ruins as God had just destroyed those cities because of their wickedness. We left Lot in the cave with his two daughters, and now as chapter 20 begins, the scene shifts and it returns to Abraham and his sojourning and his travels, and that's appropriate because this is a sermon series on the life of Abraham. What we're doing is just going through the book of Genesis, we've reached the life of Abraham, and so we're just taking this one chapter at a time to learn about this great patriarch of the faith. So, if you're able, please stand, <clears throat> and I'm going to read Genesis chapter 20, Verses 1 through 18, the entire chapter. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 20. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negeb and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said to Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return here, her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. <clears throat> so Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things, and the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought, there's no fear of God at all in this place. 
and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And then God caused me to wander from my father's house. I said to her, this is the kindness you must do me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you and before everyone who, uh, and before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God. And God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Holy Spirit, come and open our hearts and minds to behold wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So, you've been having... Having read that passage, you might say, I don't know, it doesn't seem like that's really a whole lot about grace, but I want to try to show you how it is. And uh, grace is, uh, you know, it can be a complex topic, actually. It kind of reveals or manifests itself in different ways, and so I want to show you three different ways that God's grace is shown in this passage. And the first thing is this. There's a grace here that sanctifies the believer. A grace that sanctifies the believer. Now, by sanctify, what I mean is uh, to grow in holiness, uh, to progress in obedience to God. Sanctification is not talking about becoming a Christian, it's how we grow as a Christian. And the believer that I have in mind here when I say grace that sanctifies the believer is Abraham. And this is very important for us to consider as we think about this concept of grace, because very often we think of grace as just that thing that saves us, But then once we become a Christian, now it's just all about us and our work. We don't consider that grace is something that perhaps continues throughout the life of the Christian. Grace is not just what saves us, it's what keeps us saved. Grace is not just the ABCs of the faith, it's the A to Z of the faith. We never run out of our need and dependence upon grace. God's grace sanctifies us, enables us to grow in holiness. So let me show you how that happens here. Uh, The passage begins with Abraham leaving this place called Mamre, and he heads south, according to verse 1, southern part of the promised land, and he winds up in this place called Gerar. Gerar is a a pagan place, a Philistine place. It's an unconquered part of the promised land. And we're told that there's a king there, and this king's name is Abimelech. And in verse 2, we see that Abimelech comes in and he takes Sarah, Abraham's wife. We're not told exactly why he takes her. Uh, We saw another situation where Sarah got taken, and it was because she was very beautiful, we were told. Um, Sarah is 90 years old now. Not that you can't be beautiful when you're 90 years old, but it might have made it less uh, a motive for Sarah to be taken. So we don't really know why he's taken Sarah, but, but he does. Uh, And then we're told how Abraham uh, acted in this situation, and we see that Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, verse 2, she is my sister. And of course, he didn't say anything about Sarah being his wife. 
And so here, Abraham apparently is afraid. It would not have been uncommon for a husband to be killed if a woman was taken. That just kind of gets the husband out of the way. But if these people in Gerar believe that Abraham is only a brother, they presumably won't kill him. And so Abraham is concerned about losing his life. So he makes up, makes up this, this tale about Sarah being his sister. Now, if you've been following this sermon series and you've been with us for the last several weeks, this all should sound very familiar to you. Do you remember? We saw almost this exact same thing happen back in chapter 12, verses 10 through 20. Abraham and Sarah had entered the promised land. They ended up sojourning down into Egypt because of the famine, and Abraham became scared. And he thought, they're going to take my wife, and they're going to kill me. And so he gets together with Sarah, and they put together this plan that they're going to lie about their relationship and say they're just brother and sister. And God intervenes in that case. Maybe you remember, God intervenes, sends plagues upon Egypt and the Pharaoh, and the Pharaoh then ends up releasing Sarah back to Abraham. Well, the same thing is happening here. Abraham has come up with this lie, and God intervenes. Not with plagues this time, but by speaking in a dream. Verse 3, God steps in, speaks to the king, and here is probably one thing you never want to hear from God. You're a dead man, he says in verse 3. And the reason why is because the woman that you've taken, she is a man's wife. She belongs to Abraham. And so Abimelech responds to this, and he says, I didn't even know this, Uh, verse 5. He told me that she was his sister, and she said that he was her brother. I didn't know this. They, they lied to me. And the very same thing happened with Pharaoh back in chapter 12. And Pharaoh had to come to, to Abraham and say, what, what's going on here? Pharaoh didn't know. Abimelech doesn't know. Now, why is this here? Is this, is this an error? Is this a mistake? You know, liberal scholars will tell you that, yeah, this is just the same story from chapter 12. They just repackaged it again here in chapter 20. So why is this here? And the reason it's here, I think, is to show you something about the grace of of God. Because as you are a Christian and as you grow in sanctification, as you walk your life with Jesus, you're going to find that in some areas it's easy to grow and in other areas it's very hard to grow. You're going to find that there are some sins in your life that will not let you alone. They won't go away. They constantly assail you. You'll find yourself doing it, and you're ashamed, and you confess, and you promise you'll never do it again, and then there you are, doing the same thing, and you feel awful about it, because you remember how you said you weren't going to do that, and now you're doing it again. And in Abraham's case, it would seem that the besetting sin, one of these sins that he just struggled with, was the sin of lying. It was just a habit he had gotten into. Just something he just did, particularly when he was in pressured situations. And that's very often when these besetting sins creep up in our lives, aren't they? It's when we get in certain situations. We're really tired. We're with certain people we don't get along with. There's some kind of outward pressure, and the sin in our heart just bubbles to the surface, and out it comes again. That's why this passage is here again, to show you that Abraham 
struggled with this. I mean, remember, Abraham's been a believer in Yahweh for 25 years now. He is God's chosen man, and we've seen Abraham do some amazing things, and we might look at this and think, ah, well, I guess he's got the sin problem dealt with. But no, he doesn't, and none of us has the sin problem dealt with. We all have our besetting sins. What is it for you? Maybe pride, gluttony, anger, unbelief, same-sex attraction. What is it? You want to be over it, and it just keeps coming back. Hebrews 12.1 talks about the sin that clings so closely. The reason this is here, I think, and this is one of the ways the Bible teaches, is that sometimes we see ourselves in the text. And when we look and see, wow, Abraham had a besetting sin? Maybe I'm not the only one. Isn't there comfort in that? I'm not the only one. It's not to excuse the sin, but it encourages you to know you're not weird, you're not strange, you're not an aberration. We all have these sins that we struggle with. If Abraham had his, you probably have yours, and I know I have mine. John Piper says this, a Christian is not a person who experiences no bad desires. A Christian is a person who is at war with those desires by the power of the Spirit. We're never at a point where the bad desires go away. But part of sanctification is fighting those desires, waging war against them. And that's a mark of growth and sanctification. Now, you might say, well, I'm not really sure where the grace is there, but okay, let me put it this way. Um, as you look into the New Testament, there is a lot said about Abraham. I mean, he's mentioned in James chapter 2, Galatians chapter 3, Romans chapter 4, Hebrews chapter 11. All of those passages are saying things about Abraham. And they talk a lot about his life and about the things that he did but one thing that's never mentioned is his besetting sins. The text never brings up Abraham's hang-ups. It's like in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God is not going to shame Abraham by forcing him to remember those things he struggled with. I mean, maybe, maybe it's true when Hebrews 8.12 says, I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Now, does this mean there's no consequence to sins? Does this mean it's okay to sin? Well, of course not. There are consequences to sin. Fellowship with our Lord can be broken when we sin, but one thing that can't be broken is God's love for you, even as you struggle with your sins. It's very easy to misunderstand this kind of thing and, 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 and say, well, okay, if this is the, the case, and you know, I can just sin today, and God's not even going to remember tomorrow morning? Well, let's have fun today. You know, let's do whatever we want. He's going to forget everything I've done anyway. But if you conclude that from what's going on here, you're totally misunderstanding because what's going to happen? We're going to get to chapter 22 in a few weeks, and you're going to see Abraham engage in one of the most remarkable displays of radical sacrificial obedience that is in the entire Bible. Maybe aside from Jesus obeying the Father to go to the cross, there might not be a greater example of obedience than what Abraham does in chapter 22. So Abraham was treated by grace. His sins were forgotten and overlooked and not brought up, but it certainly didn't 
conclude or give Abraham the sense that he could do whatever he wanted. And, and this is the way grace is supposed to work. Titus 2 says this, the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people and it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Grace is not an excuse to sin. When you get grace, it teaches you to obey. And so <clears throat> grace is sanctifying. God's grace to Abraham is preparing him now for this great obedience in chapter 22, which we'll get to in a few weeks. Okay, there's also a grace in this passage that restrains the unbeliever, a grace that sanctifies the believer, and then a grace that restrains the unbeliever. So by unbeliever here, I'm referring to Abimelech, and I'm calling him an unbeliever because he is a pagan king. He does not know Yahweh, the God of the Scriptures. And so uh, that's Abimelech. And what is very surprising, and maybe you noticed this as I read the passage, what's very surprising is that here's Abimelech, this pagan, and he is more, at least outwardly righteous, than Abraham, God's chosen man. I mean, that's the surprising thing that you ought to see in this passage. Abimelech comes across as a very upright guy. I mean, first of all, it says in verse four, he didn't touch Sarah, didn't even approach her. So there was no sexual relation between Abimelech and Sarah. And when God speaks to Abimelech in this dream, Abimelech, as I referred to earlier, says to God, you know, I, I, didn't, I didn't know. I mean, she said that, or he said that she was his sister, etc. But then look at the end of verse five, and he says, in the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. In other words, the innocence of my hands, I didn't do anything with my hands, I didn't actually commit any act, but it's also the integrity of my heart, and that is that my motives were pure. I didn't even have any intention of doing anything with her. That's what Abimelech is saying, and then God confirms that in verse six. Yes, I know. I know you've done this in the integrity of your heart. I know that you did the right thing. And so that's one way we see Abimelech's uprightness here, but another way we see it is if you go down to verse eight, and we see the response of his servants. Abimelech rose early in the morning after the dream is over. He calls his servants to him. He tells his servants about this dream, and they're very much afraid. They hear about this God, and, and they're, 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 they have certain awe and fear of this God. I mean, these are the men who are under Abimelech's leadership. And what's ironic here is it seems like these men have more fear of God than Abraham does. So, consider here, first of all though, why is it that Abraham, excuse me, why is it that Abimelech didn't touch Sarah, Abraham's wife? And we see the answer to that in verse six. It can be very easy to kind of overlook it, but, but here ultimately is the reason. The end of verse six, God says, I know you did these things in integrity, Abimelech, but it was I who kept you from sinning against me. I did not let you touch her. Now, boy, if you ever doubt anything about the sovereignty of God, focus on that passage for a little while. I mean, God in his sovereignty did not allow Abimelech to touch that woman. And so what we're seeing here is something that uh, the theologians call common grace. 
This is a great passage teaching this doctrine of common grace. Common grace is not saving grace. Saving grace is the grace of God given to us, opening our eyes and causing us to be born again to receive Jesus as Savior and bringing us into his kingdom. That's saving grace. This is common grace. It's a grace that's extended to everybody, but it doesn't save. And so we would look to certain passages like um, Psalm 145.9, the Lord is good to all. It's not the Lord is just good to Christians. The Lord's good to all. Isaiah 26, when grace is shown to the wicked, they do not learn righteousness. When grace is shown to a believer who's saved, we learn righteousness. The wicked don't learn righteousness, but nonetheless, grace is shown to them. That's common grace. Here's um, a definition by a guy named John Murray. Common grace is this. Every favor of whatever kind or degree, falling short of salvation, which this undeserving world enjoys at the hand of God. God is good to all. Whether you're a believer or not here today, you have enjoyed the blessings of God. God is good to his whole creation. He's good to the cattle on a thousand hills that nobody's ever even seen before, and he feeds them and takes care of them. All good things come from above. That's common grace. Now, there are different kinds of common grace. Uh, One, temporal blessings, health, food, shelter. These blessings that are so easy to overlook. This is one of the reasons why we thank God before our meals, right? We're just acknowledging this comes from from God. It's a sign of his goodness to us. Matthew 5 says this, God causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. He doesn't just send rain on Christians when they need it. Unbelievers benefit from the rain that comes out of the sky at God's bidding. There's temporal blessings. Uh, Another kind of common grace, gifts and talents. God doesn't withhold gifts and talents from unbelievers. God gives talents to all kinds of different people. He gives skills to different people, whether they're Christians or not, and as Christians, we get to enjoy the talents and skills that he's given to people who don't agree with us. And we can take that and enjoy that. In fact, here's what John Calvin says in the Institutes. If the Lord has willed that we be helped in physics, dialectic, that's just a reference to logic, mathematics, and other disciplines, by the work and ministry of the ungodly, let us use this assistance. For if we neglect God's gift freely offered in these arts, we ought to suffer just punishment for our sloth. It's like it's, it's kind of an example of sloth and laziness to not benefit from gifts, inventions, provisions that come from people outside the church. We don't have to cut them off because they're not believers. God has been good to them. God has equipped them, and we can enjoy that. And now, there's one other thing, though, and this is what shows up in our text. Another kind of common grace is that God restrains sin and wickedness in the world. And that's what's going on in verse six. The reason ultimately that Abimelech did not touch Sarah is because God kept him from doing it. He kept him from sinning. Grace in the world coming from God is what prevents people from being worse than they are. And in fact, I think we can say that if it weren't for the grace of God, it would be literally all hell breaking loose on earth. 
I mean, if you think things are bad, let me just encourage you to thank God that things aren't worse. Because they could be. And we see this in some of our apocalyptic films. I read the book The Road by Cormac McCarthy a few years ago, just painting this desolate picture of a, of a world in which all restraints have been withdrawn. And people are just living like animals, killing each other, doing whatever they can to get their next meal. It's just a picture of a godless world, a graceless world. And if God were to withdraw his grace, that's the world we would live in. So, common grace is being taught here in this passage, and we see various kinds of common grace. Now, one thing we should avoid as Christians is doing the thing that Abraham did here in response to common grace. So, watch what happens here. In verse 9, Abimelech calls Abraham. And so, Abimelech wants Abraham to give an account of what's happened. And Abimelech asks Abraham all these questions. What have you done? How have I sinned against you? I mean, what did I do to you, Abraham, that would make you want to do this to me? Uh, He says, you have done things that ought not to be done. It's like Abimelech has a moral conscience. He says, what you just did is morally wrong. You shouldn't have done that. Abimelech knows that somehow. And so he's demanding a response from Abraham. And in verse 11, Abraham gives his response. And he says, well, here's, here's why I did it. He said, I just thought, there's no fear of God in this place. There's no fear of God in Gerar. They're going to kill me because of my wife. In other words, what he's saying is, you guys are a bunch of immoral pagans. You guys don't believe the God that I believe in. Therefore, I must be so much more moral and upright than you. It's like Abraham doesn't conceive of the fact that there could be people out there who are more moral than he is even if they don't share his belief in the one true God. And friends, as Christians, we have to be careful about that. You know, looking out in the world and say, oh, there's a person who believes a different religion. Oh, there's an atheist, the person who doesn't believe in my God, therefore they must be wicked to the core and they can't do anything useful or good in the world. I mean, that's just a slanderous thing to think and a slanderous thing to say. I mean, we can acknowledge that people who don't agree with us do good things. We can do that and we should do that because ultimately it's the common grace of God that allows that. Sometimes there's this charge against Christians. Sometimes people say, yeah, you Christians think that atheists can't live a moral life. And that's not what we're saying. They can live a moral life. What we would just say is there's no justification in your worldview for morality because you've dismissed God from your worldview. I mean, I don't understand how you come to the conclusion that there are moral right and wrongs, so there's a problem in your worldview, but I'm not denying that you can't live an outwardly good life, but that seemed to be what Abraham was doing here. He just couldn't imagine that Abimelech could do good and right things, and yet he did. But what we need to notice here, friends, is that whatever good and right things he did was only by the grace of God. God kept him from sinning and doing what he otherwise would have done apart from that grace. So, one last thing. We've got grace that sanctifies the believer. We've got grace that restrains the unbeliever. And then lastly, we've got grace that saves the sinner. There is a grace that's offered to any who desire forgiveness and favor of God and acceptance into the kingdom of God when you come to God by God's appointed means. So that's very important to understand, by God's appointed means. So let me show you that. 
Um, conversation concludes. Abraham and Abimelech, they have this conversation. And um, Abimelech's asking for an explanation. And so Abraham is trying to explain. And he says in verse 12, you know, well, technically she's not my sister. She's just my half-sister. Uh, you know, just conveniently ignoring the fact that they're married, that's really the key point. Not whether it's half-sister or sister, but that's what Abraham says. And um, he, he explains that, well, you know, we've always had this plan. God called us to, 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 to go, uh, and we just kind of decided that wherever we went, that uh, we would say that we were brother and sister. And, um, and then in response to that, we see Abimelech, he, he just kind of, responds again just above reproach so you know he he knows that he's taken sarah but in his own mind he knows he didn't intend anything evil by that but but nonetheless he feels like he's got to make restitution like in his mind i, I got to do the right thing here so he returns sarah verse 14 um, very important because if god's redemptive promises are going to be fulfilled abraham and sarah have to be together so we're glad for that in verse 14, that's key. Uh, but we also see Abimelech gives to Abraham sheep, oxen, male servants, verse 14. Um, offers him the land, verse 15, the land is before you. It's kind of like he's offering Abraham maybe to be a citizen in Gerar. Uh, verse 16, a thousand pieces of silver given to Abraham. A thousand pieces of silver, unbelievable, extraordinary amount. This would be more than a man could earn in a lifetime. A thousand pieces of silver coming from Abimelech to Abraham. And he explains that the reason why is because he wants to make sure that Sarah is vindicated before all in verse 16. This is going to be a sign of your innocence, Sarah. Before everyone, you are vindicated. In other words, I want to make it sure and clear that nobody thinks that you and I had anything going on. You are innocent, and Abimelech wants that to be publicly known. Another example of Abimelech acting righteously. And then the passage ends, verses 17 and 18, and we see there's this miraculous thing that happens. God opens up the wombs of all of the women and the female slaves in Gerar, and they bore children at the end of verse 17. Now, that ought to immediately make you think about Abraham's situation with Sarah because what have we been thinking about this whole time? God has made a promise that Sarah is going to bear a child and it hasn't happened. And can you imagine how many times Abraham probably prayed to God and said, oh Lord, please God, give us a child and open Sarah's womb. And he didn't for 25 years now. But now he's opening the wombs of all the women in Gerar. I mean, that had to have been somewhat frustrating for Abraham to realize. But, nonetheless, what we're supposed to think here, I think at the end of chapter 20, is just this. Wait, if God can open the wombs of women in Gerar, he can open Sarah's womb. I bet he can do it. It's just reminding us and getting us ready for chapter 21, which is next week. Stay tuned. And how appropriate on our Christmas service that we're going to hear about a miraculous birth next Sunday. But that's the end of chapter 20. It's like, wow, God opens wombs. Maybe he can open Sarah's womb. And we start to get excited again about God's faithfulness and his goodness. Now, where, where is the gospel in all this? I mean, certainly God's ability to open the womb is one, but, but here's how I want to present the gospel as we bring this to a close. 
If salvation, friends, if salvation is by good, upright, moral conduct, which is the way most people think, I'm just gonna be as good as I can, I'm gonna live a good, upright life, and God will love me and forgive me, and he'll receive me into his kingdom, because I'm a good person, I'm not like bad people, I'm a good person. If that's the gospel, then wouldn't we expect at the end of this passage to, to hear something like, so therefore go out and be like Abimelech and don't be like Abraham. Abimelech is better than Abraham, so be like him and don't follow the example of Abraham. But the gospel, friends, tells us that salvation is by grace and not by works, that nobody is saved by being a good, moral, upright person. And this is not what happens at the end of the chapter. Instead, what we see is that Abimelech, not interceding for Abraham, which is what you might expect since Abimelech is the good guy, instead we see Abraham interceding for Abimelech. Verse 17, then Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife. The reason why God opened the wombs of all these women is because Abraham interceded on behalf of Abimelech. A pagan man, an upright man, yeah, but a pagan man who didn't know the one true God and a pagan man who no matter how good he could be could not be good enough to earn the favor of God. He needed an intercessor. He needed a mediator and you do too. You need a mediator. It doesn't matter how good you've been in your life. It doesn't matter how many good things you've done or how many bad things you haven't done. You need a mediator. And the scriptures tell us later that we have a mediator who is much, much better than the inconsistent, flaky Abraham. 1 Timothy 2, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all. Jesus can be your mediator. Not by, being a, not by just trying to do better, but by repenting of your sins and placing faith in this Savior. Will you do that if you haven't done that yet? That's the only way to salvation. That's why I mean by God's appointed means. Grace that saves the sinner by God's appointed means. God's way, not your way. And God's way is it comes through the son of Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the good news, the grace that is offered here is this, and that is that when you trust Jesus, you have the assurance that God will love you when you're good, and he's gonna love you when you're bad. It's not gonna change. Your fellowship might be disrupted in your sins, but there is nothing in all creation that can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ our Savior. Grace that's greater than all our sin. Is that too good to be true? <laughs> it might seem that way, but according to the scriptures, not too good to be true. It is true, and it's worth singing about. Let me pray first. Father, God in heaven, we thank you for your grace that you don't treat us as our sins deserve, that you remove our sins from us as far as the east is from the west, that you choose not to remember our sins, that you treat us in grace and love and not accordance with what we deserve. We thank you for that, and Lord, we ask, please, by your spirit, let us not abuse your grace, but respond to it by committing ourselves, devoting ourselves to following you and obeying you and doing whatever you ask. Help us to do that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.